Father, we thank you for all that you've done this morning. We've had an opportunity to worship you. And we just thank you for the spirit of worship that was in this place, Father. We thank you, Lord, now that we can turn to your word. This is what you've given to your church. You've given to your church, which is part of the, which is, is the body of your dear son. And Lord, you put us here for something to accomplish your will. And you've equipped us with everything that we need. Even if we feel like we lack it, we don't because you've given to us everything we need. You've given us your word and you've given us your spirit. And so, Father, right now, with, with great expectation and confidence that we prepare to open your word, expecting you to speak to us personally through this word. We believe you're speaking to Faith Christian Center, but we also know that you're speaking to us individually. And so, Father, we ask you to speak to us. May we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to grasp what it is you're saying to us this morning. And we put our trust in the Holy Spirit who lives in us, is here among us, and whose anointing is upon this word. And Father, we just trust you to do that and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen Amen. and amen. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We've been talking this, this year, as we began this year, about seasons of our life, seasons of, of the church, as, as the history of the church, seasons for churches, and, and, and it's important why we're talking about this, and we'll get more into this a little bit today. But let's read the scripture, very famous scripture, to everything, say everything, everything. see that includes you and me, that includes FCC, to everything there's a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. So there are seasons of life. I was joking earlier that I'm in a season of life where bowling one and a half <laughs> games when you don't do it regularly is not the same as when I was 20. And, uh, and your body doesn't require, you know, we speak the word over our body, but the reality is at my age it's not doesn't function the same way it did when I was 20. And that's not shocking because there's different seasons of our life. There are different seasons to the church itself. There was the season back when the church was birthed in, Acts, in the book of Acts. And there was a season, there have been different seasons, if you study church history, that it's gone through. Different moves of the Spirit, different moves of God, different times when different things have been, been, been uh, highlighted or emphasized by the Spirit of God because God knows where we are and where He wants to take us, take His body, and what's needed at the time. And so we, we talked when we began this, looking at... And what Jesus said to the Pharisees, you know, you're smart enough in the natural to discern the season you're in. And of course, over there, they don't have four seasons like we do here. But let's bring it to us. We're, you know, today's a little hard to discern the season because it's now so warm out there. But, but it's January and it's not shocking normally to get up and feel it cold because we're in that season. But we also know that this season is not going to last. Whatever it may have for us, that March is coming. We know what March means. We know what to anticipate. When we get to April, we begin to see the little flowers come forth. So, and, and so the seasons help us navigate through life because we know where we are. It helps identify where we are. And so there are seasons for, for our own lives physically, and we can anticipate those changes of seasons. But there's some seasons that God directs that we don't know because we've never been down that path before. And this church is in a season. I believe this nation is in a season. I believe that the church itself is in a season. But the season we need to be focused on is the season that God has for us here and the season for our own individual lives. And the reason that's important to understand, because it says to everything there's a season and a time 
for every purpose under heaven. So what that's telling us is God has appointed a time for certain things. There goes on to say there's a time to be born and a time to die. And we don't like to talk about the time to die, but if we begin to get God's perspective on that time to die, we understand that for a Christian, that's not bad, it's good. We're going to talk about that a little further on. But there's a season for time and every purpose under heaven. So there's a purpose for the seasons that is ordained by God. Now, we can either cooperate with that or we can fight it. Many of us, you know, want to fight getting old. And, and it's one thing to, 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 to strengthen yourself. It's one thing to keep yourself in shape so you can be as strong and healthy in the next season as you can because what you do with your body in this season affects how well you can function in the next season. Is that right, Doc? Yeah, okay, I thought so. And I'm finding that out. I started exercising 20 years ago. So with what I've had to go through this last year, part of the strength I have now is based on things I started doing 20 years ago because I realized it was going to affect me when I got to this age. I don't feel my age at all. Today I may feel it a little bit. (laughs) But I know that won't last. (laughs) But it's because I've taken care of... But I also know the reality is I'm not... My body's not able to do what it did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And that's not shocking. So the key here is to understand that there's a purpose for these different seasons, but it's how you handle that, and not just that, how you adjust to the transition from one season to another. And it's that transition that we're talking about, because the word we use for it is that a transition is change. So we've been talking about change, because change is part of life. That's what that says, and God has ordained change as part of our life. And so we need to learn how to, the Bible teaches us, how to handle and how to adjust and cooperate with these changes because if they're ordained by God, they're for our good. And if we fight those changes, then God's best, because you're going to get to that next season anyway, God's best is not going to be experienced in your life because you fight the change. And we talked about human natures, we don't like change. We're just sad at what, you know, I'll, I'll be able, I'll, I'll deal with what I got now. But when you start talking about change, it gets uneasy because I don't know what that change is going to be. I don't know if I'm going to like it. I'm happy where I am. I'm, in fact, I may be miserable where I am, but at least I know where I am. But change implies some uncertainty. So we talked about how to go through that change, and we looked at Jesus as an example. Because in, Ma- in Jean- John chapter 4, Jesus is preparing his disciples for a dramatic change. They've been living with him for three and a half years. Every need that they need has been taken care of by him. And he's about to leave them. And he tells them he's about to leave them. He's been trying to prepare them for a while. But they couldn't hear it because they didn't want to hear it. In fact, even now they oppose it. And Jesus says to them, I'm, trying- I- I'm going to be leaving you. And he- his- this is what is so important to understand. His heart was out for them. He says, don't be troubled. God doesn't want you troubled, especially if, you, if you're going through change. He doesn't want you troubled going through that change. And so he was spent that most of chapter 14 trying to help them and prepare them for that change. And he tells them several things. He says, first of all, he says, trust me. You know my God and you know my Father. You believe in Him, believe in me. Believe in the one that's telling you. Then he told them, he says, this is for your benefit. Because I'm going to go, I'm going to ask the Father, in fact, it's to your advantage that you go through this change. Because what you're going to have after this is going to be better than what you have now. So there has to be a hope. You have to trust the one that's leading you in the change. And then you have to see there's a purpose for this change that's better than where I am now. Otherwise, we're not motivated. That's why diets only work if you finally look in the mirror and says, I'm getting tired of this. I'm getting tired of my pants being tight. And then you get a mental picture of what it's going to be like. So when you look at that second helping of cheesecake, 
or the first helping. And you look and say, you know, if I, if I eat this, it's going to show up somewhere. Do I want it to show up where it's going to show up? And it gives you the strength if you see the incentive to begin to, 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 to do what you need to do. I'll get off that quickly. Okay, let's go to the next one. <laughs> and then he says, well, you know, it's how do I go through this change? What's the way? He says, I'm, I'm going to show you a way. And they said, Philip said, oh, we don't know the way. And Jesus said, yes, you do. I'm the way. So all we got to do is follow him through the changes. Stay as close to him as you can. Keep your eyes on him. That's all he ever called his disciples to do. And if we're disciples, that's what he's called us to do. Follow him, which means we have to keep our eyes on him. And we'll talk about that some other time, later time, what that means. And lastly, he had to tell them that whatever this was they were going to go through, he would be there with them. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you and abandon you. And I think sometimes we think when we're going through changes that God's abandoned us somewhere. God never's abandoned you. He has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's watching over you while you sleep, the Bible says. He's watching over you when you're not watching over yourself. And he does a better job of watching over you than you do watching over you. Okay. So that's kind of what we covered. And then we began to talk about uh, 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 the... Oh, by the way, one thing is we talked about some myths, M-Y-T-H-S's, of, of, that people have about change, which is, well, you can't teach an old dog new trick. You can't find that in the Bible. No, it may be harder to teach an old dog new tricks, but anybody can change if they have the attitude of change. And then that led us in. We began to talk last time about the attitude of change. We talked about what is an attitude. It's a predetermined way of looking at things. And the way you look at things, the way you expect something to be is what you're going to see. If it gets outside of what you think is going to happen, it's harder to see and to recognize. And so sometimes, you know, I've had people see me, I've used this example before, they'll run into me, you know, in jeans or, 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 or in a supermarket, and they, I've had people in church just walk right by me. Because they didn't want to expect, they, they think I just live here in a suit standing by this pulpit. And I have a life outside of the church. And I have a wife, I have children, I have grandchildren, and a great grandchild now. And I just, you know, I actually go to the store, I go to the grocery store, I go, you know, I do things, the kind of things you do. But people, my point is, when you have a certain viewpoint of someone or something, it determines how you look at things. And so we're not going to belabor that and go back over it. But that's what an attitude is. So we're going through a series of issues, of, of, of things to look at. The first thing that's, that's critical to change is you have to have a desire to change. We talked about that last week. There has to be a sincere and strong desire. You have to want to change or you won't. And, and sometimes it's tricky to, to discern what it is we really want. Sometimes people think they want one thing, but in reality they want something else. A lot of times what we want is change is relief. I've told you about people come into the, in for counseling and they're, you know, they're in this situation, whether it's a, their financial difficulty, and what they want to do is they want, they want me to tell them how to get out of that, out of the pressure that they're feeling. But they don't want to change because where they, what they're doing has got them into the difficulty they're in before. So get me out, but I don't want to change. The classic non-professional definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But a lot of times what we want is relief. We, we like the attention we're getting because of that difficulty we're going through. Or it becomes an excuse for us. And I shared some of those things last week. We're not going to go back over that. So, so desire, strong desire is an important thing. And what we ended up with last time is openness or teachability, which is your willingness 
your willingness to change, your willingness to begin to look honestly at yourself, your willingness to, to and we talked about the Bible, the Bible didn't say, but I talked about the example of using masks that the Greek, uh, in the Greek theaters in the old days, they would portray their character's disposition by a mask that they would wear. So if they were a character that was mean or angry, they would wear a mask that communicated that. And we do that in life. We have ways we want people to see us. And so we wear those masks, not physical masks on the outside, although sometimes it is... I'm blessed. How are you? I'm blessed too. I'm ble- We're all blessed, aren't we? I'm blessed. I'm as mad as Dickens at you, but I'm blessed. I love you. Mm. So we can wear masks, and we wear masks not only, with, not only to one another, but we wear masks with God. This is one of the things God's had to strip away from me so that I can have a more personal, intimate relationship with Him because those masks interfere with our intimacy and relationship. Because if I'm trying to pretend something, I'm not being real and honest and sincere. In Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about one of the most powerful scriptures in the Bible. It talks about that we are to come, we can come because of Christ as our high priest, because he's a faithful high priest. We can come, we can come with a sincere heart, it says, and our bodies washed with pure water, that's baptism, and having our hearts sprinkled from a guilty conscience. We can come with boldness, that means openness, into the God's throne. But the, the beginning of that is with a sincere heart. Sincere means I'm not putting up any mask. I'm not trying to protect God, project to God I'm somebody special, that I'm more committed than anybody else. And we saw Peter was like that. Peter just thought he was more committed than any of his brothers, and he fell more than any of the others, because he denied Jesus publicly three times. And so we looked at some of that last time. But John, who had no image like that, his only image was I'm the one that Jesus loved. He was the only one that remained faithful through that crucifixion. And so it's being open and honest about yourself and being willing to let God talk to you. So the, the, the first one we're going to get into today, which is really kind of the other side of that, is truth. So to do that, let's look at 1 John chapter 1. John, had, John talks a lot about truth. It's in his gospel, and he uses light as an example of that, and we'll see that here. Because what does light do? It tells you what's really there, doesn't it? If you walk into, if you're, staying in, if you're staying in a hotel room, in a strange hotel or hotel room, and you get up in the night and you don't know where you're going, you, what do you do? You turn on the light so you can see what's actually there. I've told you a number of times that sometimes I'm tempted to walk in here going from one side of the church to the other without turning the light on. We have a walk-in light that's just designed to keep me from bumping my shins on things and everybody else. And so, but I have a path I think I can walk through. But I was doing that one time and and there was a a lift or something in here where they were working on and the lights were turned out and I walked right into it because I was not paying attention. I didn't, I thought I, I, this is good. I thought I knew what was there. And I ran into reality <laughs> with my shins. <laughs> I ran into reality. And it reminded me for several days later on that it's very wise to walk in truth. It's very wise to walk in the light. Because the light tells you what's actually there. Shadows, partial light, can confuse you. Total darkness, usually we're smart enough, usually, we're smart enough to know I better not go in there unless because I can't see where I'm going. But where we can get a mistake, and this is what happened to me, I thought I could see enough to get through there because there were shadows. It wasn't, the light wasn't on, but it wasn't pitch dark. 
So it's in those shadows where we get in trouble, where we have a mixture of truth and untruth, where we get confused. And so we need to know where the light is. Anybody know where the light is? It's in here. It's this book. Did I give you enough time to find 1 John chapter 1? Verse 5. This is the message we heard from Him. If you went back and looked earlier, what you see is, is John talks about God has spoken to us through many times before, through prophets, but now He's spoken to us through His Son, through Jesus Christ. And He said we could touch Him, we could handle Him. And, but now He's going to say, and this is the message we heard from Him. God came to earth so that we could not mistake Him and what He had to say. And this is what He said to us. This is the message we heard from Him. And remember, John didn't hear this through some preacher. John sat in the presence of the Son of God. John heard the message, just like you're hearing this message, directly from the God's mouth into His ears. And this is the message which we have heard from Him, and we declare to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. It's interesting, if you go over to, don't do this, but if you go to James chapter 1 verse 17, it's talking about that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. There's no shadows with God. God is straightforward. God doesn't play games with us. God doesn't, doesn't, doesn't imply one thing and really mean something else. This word is straightforward. When God says He's done something, He's done something. It's man that takes it and twists what it says, spins in our modern, modern vernacular, spins what it says so that I can, adjust, it can, I can adjust God's Word to me. And so, but God is truth. So this is the measure that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. He's pure light. Verse 6, now He's going to apply to us. If we say we have fellowship with Him. Now, the word fellowship is, is a word that has become part of our Christianese. And I want to talk about it for a minute. Because when, when I don't know about you think of when I hear fellowship, I think of going to a restaurant together. I think of talking to one another. I think of just... And, but it, it may, that may be where fellowship happens. But the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which literally means to share something together, to go through something together, to be in a close working relationship together. And the best example of that, you are intimately familiar with it, it's your body. Your body's made up of many different parts, many different cells, many different organs that perform many different functions, but they work together. They have a common identity and they have a common purpose. I want you to get that. Your body parts, your different organs, have a common goal, a common purpose, which is whatever your brain tells it you've got to do, and even when your brain's not telling it, it's to maintain the healthy and the, normal, the needed operations of your body. Your heart is beating now, I hope, but your brain doesn't have to tell it to beat. You're breathing, but your brain doesn't have to tell it to beat. God designed this body in such a way that it works so well together that there are things it just naturally does without you having to tell it to do it. And it works together, and it has the same identity. Your foot and your hand are part of your body. 
You don't call your foot one thing and your hand something else. Or you call it your foot. But you, you know, so if you stub your toe in the middle of your night, your hands immediately reach for your toe to help it. Why? Because you're, you stubbed your toe. And I don't want to get off on this too far, because, but this is good. We are the body of Christ. And Paul goes on to say, and individually members of one another. That's not just some symbol. That's literally how God sees us. We are His body. And we are to be, we are in fellowship with one another. Which means we are, because we're different parts of His body, we are joined together by the spirit of unity. We are joined together. The problem is our identity is not Christ. Our identity is myself. So we have, on a Sunday morning, 700 some individuals walk in here to get what 700 individuals think they need, and 700 individuals walk out. What if my body did that? There are parts of me still be in bed. <laughs> there may be parts of me here, but there are parts of me still be in bed if I could do that. I've had some mornings I got up, I wish I could leave my body in bed <laughs> and have my spirit go into work. <laughs> and the soul can stop and have some coffee or something. <laughs> but that's how we function. And that's why we struggle. That's why God's will isn't done the way God intends it to do. And it has to change. Because we have an opponent, Satan, who's the thing that scares him more than anything is unity. How good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell in unity. And then it talks about that's where God commands his blessings. That's where the anointing flows, like the oil coming down on Aaron's beard. That's where the blessings of God flow is when there's unity. Why? Because God just likes unity? No, because then his body's functioning whole. When your body functions the way the church functions, it's dysfunctional. It, it, is, it, is, it, is, it is ill. We take it to the hospital. We go to the doctor to find out, why is my leg not working right? Why is my heart going too fast? Why, why, this is not right. It should be, it should be norm, normal. It should be everything's working together. And that's what the body of Christ has got to have happen. So this word fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with Him, if we say we're walking in communion with Him and walk in darkness, I love the Bible, it doesn't, it doesn't couch anything, it doesn't water anything down, we lie. If we say we have fellowship with Him, I'm going to pull your toes in a little bit right now. If, and I'm talking to me as much as you. If we say we have wonderful fellowship with Him, I pray, I hear God's voice, you know, I worship, worship is wonderful. If we say we have fellowship with Him, if we say we're one with Him and walk in darkness, we're lying. We're lying. It's not that we've misspoken. Thank you, Richard. It's not that we've misspoken. It's not we made a mistake. We've lied. And do not practice the truth. Oh, it's going to get better. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light, the truth, as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another, 
And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Look, the, look at this. The blood can't cleanse you unless you walk in the light. Unless you walk in truth, God can't forgive you. Uh, before we go in the next, no, no, go back. I, that's, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, if we walk in truth, and this is being open to be honest with ourselves. It's kind of familiar with the mask. If we're willing to be honest before God, and, and let me just, if you, God's not listening right now, so, so I'm not letting you, I'm not getting any secrets out that he, doesn't know, that he knows about. God already knows. Because Hebrew says there's nothing hidden from his sight. Now, oh boy, I could get off on this. In John chapter 1, it says people that want to walk in darkness is usually because they want to hide something. I don't know about you, but the fact that God can see everything in my heart and life is a relief to me. Because I don't want to hide things from Him, but I know myself well enough to know there are things I don't want to look at. I don't trust myself in that regard. There's some things I may, when I read this Word, one of the things I pray when I read this Word almost all the time is, Lord, open my eyes to the things I don't want to see because they're the things I need to see. See, we we manage information. So when things get uncomfortable for me, sometimes I'll turn a page in the Bible so I don't want to read that. I don't want to get into certain books. I like books that, that encourage me. And there are times that's what I need. I need the Spirit of God to guide me. There's sometimes I need a kick in the seat of the pants. And so do you. Don't look at me that way. <laughs> but we have, if we trust... Remember when it starts with... If we got to trust the one who's doing it. If we trust Him... Because He loves us as a Father, He only disciplines us or corrects us for our good because He loves us. So we can trust Him. He's not going to punish you. He's not going to hurt you. He's trying to help you and me. And the changes He wants to take us through are to help us and to benefit us. Okay. Now go on because I'll get stuck on this verse. Verse 8. Where you started to go before. If we say we have no... Now He's going to get down to specifics. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We'll talk more about that later. And the truth is not in us. Verse 9. This is the one we like. This is the one we love. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. The word confess simply means to own up to. It means to own up. The word confess, one of the Webster's uh, unabridged dictionary's definitions of confess is to accept ownership of. And you stop and think about it. If you confess something, you're accepting, I did it. I'm responsible. I'm not blaming everybody. And see, this is what we started in the garden, is the blame game. Adam was responsible for what happened there. We're going to be looking at it in a minute. Adam was responsible for what happened there. I hope you know the clock went out. I can't see what time it is, so that's dangerous. <laughs> I'll keep going until the clock tells me it's done. <laughs> Where was I before I interrupted myself? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Adam was responsible. I got my wife. She'll help. <laughs> Adam was responsible. So who did God go to when there was a disobedience? He went to the one that was responsible. Thank you. He went to the one that was responsible. And what did Adam do? He said, the woman you gave me. He said, God, there's only three here. I just know I didn't do it. <laughs> it's either her or you. 
Because we, we're going to see this in a few minutes. We, we try to cover ourselves and protect ourselves. But, but the key to all, knowing the grace of God, the key to experiencing the grace and the love of God is to be open and honest with Him. Because He already knows. God, whatever God wants to show you about yourself is to free you. Is to share, is to, is to, is to make His grace and love real to you. If you think, you know, I, well, I, I can't talk to Him honestly. I gotta cover this. I've gotta protect myself. If you think that, then you won't really experience His grace. Hebrews 4 talks about coming to a throne of grace to receive mercy and help when you've done everything so well. No, in time of need. James 5 says, confess your faults to one another. Not to a priest, to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. And that's talking about made whole. So as we're, now you've got to be careful who you do this with, but you have to have some people in your life you're real with. But one of them has to be God. <laughs> and the other one has to be you. Because I found out this starts with me being honest with me. Because if I'm not honest with me, I'm not going to be honest with God, and then I'm not going to be honest with you. But it's only when we bring the walls down and we're willing to be honest that we can experience His love and His forgiveness and His grace. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. He's, he's faithful. When you're not faithful, He's still faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right. Now, the Greek word for truth is aletheia. A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A. Don't worry about it, but this, I like that word. And that word actually means nothing hidden. Completely open. Nothing hidden. And the best example of that is to show you another term we use in society is what you see is what you get. But let's go to Genesis chapter 2. You've heard me mention this before, but I just want to show it to you. God's created them. God created the man, then brought the woman out of him, because he said it wasn't good for him to be alone. Him to be alone. Created all the animals. He made all the creation just the way he wanted to. And he gave them a responsibility to develop the land, to, to watch over it, to nurture it. He gave, them, he gave them everything that they needed. And then he placed them in a place called Eden, which means the place of delight. And God says, go for it. Have fun. Eat everything you want to eat. Imagine God telling you, eat anything you want to eat. There's just one thing you can't eat, the, tree of the, knowledge, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, and that's how, and at the end of this chapter, there's, to me, which is such a powerful verse, verse 25, Genesis 2.25. It says, And they were both naked, and the man and his wife were not ashamed. They had nothing. They didn't cover themselves. They didn't need to. Why? Because they weren't even conscious of themselves. All they were conscious of was God's presence. They were nothing to hide because they'd never sinned. There was nothing wrong. There was nothing to hide. And because of that, they had this wonderful, free, and open relationship and communion with God. The implication is that God would come down and walk with them in the garden, would physically come down and physically walk with them, physically talk with them. And there was nothing hidden between God and them. I can't begin to... Well, we'll know what it's like when we get to heaven. Because this was literally heaven on earth. 
And so this, here, this statement here is not just referring, to, I think, to the fact that they had no clothes on. They had no, they were nothing to hide because there was nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, if it only ended there. But we know chapter 3 changes everything. And we're going to go look, now that they've eaten the fruit that they shouldn't have eaten, they've sinned, they've disobeyed God, we're going to go over and look at this contrast in chapter 3 and verse 7, because now God comes down and it says, verse 7, it says, So the eyes of both of them were opened. In other words, they could now see things they couldn't see before. What did they see? And they knew that they were naked, which means in chapter 2, they didn't realize they were naked. They were not conscious of themselves at all. I've taught you this before. The root of all sin is self. It's really simple. If you want to know what Satan's after, it's not your money, it's not your health. He's after self. He wants yourself to worship him. He wants you to, 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 to get you anything to get your eyes of your heart and your heart away from God. He doesn't care about you. It's God he's trying to hurt. And the only way he can hurt God is to pull you away from him. I never taught this before. Because God made you to be with him. He made you so that he would have pleasure in your relationship with him. The purpose of your life, the reason God created you, was not so that you could do things for him. That's a side thing. The reason God created you is so that he could have an intimate, close relationship with you. In Revelation, it talks about that God created us to give him pleasure. Well, there's nothing you can do. You can't take out of the movies. You know, you can't buy him pizza. There's nothing you can do for God that's going to give him pleasure. What gives The only thing that gives God pleasure is you. Focused on him. Change my prayer life. I don't spend all my time in the morning now going through a whole list of things to pray for, especially for myself. I spend my time in the morning, especially in the beginning of just sitting with him, focused inside, saying, I love you. Opening my heart. To, my effort is to give my heart to Him then. Because it pleases Him. I want to please the one who's loved me so much. And please Him. See, if I give my heart to Him to please Him, then I'm going to govern my life that day to please Him. But if I haven't given my heart to Him, I'm going to try to do religious good things and hope they please Him when what God really wants is me. That's, that's, that's almost too good to be true. It is too good to be true. But it's the truth. What did God do with Israel? What was his complaint with Israel? You stopped loving me. You, you, all I want from you. He boiled everything down. You shall love the Lord. You shall love. You shall love. You shall love. Not serve. That came later. You shall love. The Lord, your God, the one who's given himself to you, with all your heart, with all your might, and with all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So all God really wanted from Israel was for them to love him above everything else. Just to love him. To love him back. And that's what God wants from you and me. And if you begin to change the focus of your life, I'm here to give him pleasure. I can give God pleasure. That was so astounding to me. I 
can bring pleasure to God. Why? He's not looking for all the stuff I thought he looked for. He wants my heart. But if he's got my heart, all the rest of those fruit will flow. Okay. So what did they do? Satan was trying to pull them away from God's heart. Pull their heart away from God by focusing their heart on themselves. And so he talks to them and says, well, God's keeping something from you. You can't trust him. He's holding something back from you. Yeah, he kept something from them, what was going to hurt them. He knew their limits because he made them. Just as he knows our limits because he made us. And he's given us a book that shows us what our limits are. And Satan wanted him to get with them to get their eyes on themselves. And the moment they did, they took matters into their own hands, literally, and they ate of that fruit. And now their eyes were opened to see things God never intended them to see. And they knew they were naked. In other words, they suddenly became self-conscious. And they sewed, look at this, fig leaves together and they made for themselves coverings. They made their own covering. Now we don't knit together fig leaves is what the typical thing is. I don't think that that's what it was. But we don't physically knit together fig leaves to cover ourselves so that we're not naked. We do other coverings. Which was those masks I talked about. We create our own coverings to present to other people so that we don't look, they can't see our nakedness. Oh, I don't have time to go there. But if you were to go over to, 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 um, to Revelation chapter 4, the, I think it's the last letter that, that Jesus dictates is to the church at Laodicea. And he said, you think that you're rich and you think that you're spiritual and you think that you're, that you, that you're so beautiful and you're, you're, you think you're wearing such glo- lovely clothes and gar- garments. That's what you think you're doing. That's the mask you're wearing. That's the covering you've made for yourself. But let me tell you how I see you. Let me tell you what the light shows. You're poor, you're wretched, and you're weak. And the people he was addressing that to, he called, he's talking to the church. He says, you're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. The danger with being lukewarm is there's enough warmth there to think you're warm. But there's enough cool there to not be hot. If you're cold, I woke up in the night because my grandson was with me. I slept in downstairs bedroom with him. And, and so I don't have the electric, the heating pad we have. And so I'm in a bed with, and it's not heated as well down there. And, you know, and I'm going from being hot to cold. But I knew I was hot at one point. I knew I was cold. But there came a point I woke up in the middle of the night and I wasn't sure whether I was really hot or whether I was cold. It was lukewarm. So I wasn't sure whether to take the covers off or to keep them on or pull them up higher because I was in that unbetween place. And this is where many Christians are. We go to church. We may even pay our tithes. We, 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 we carry our Bible around, but where's your heart? Where's your heart? 
Is your heart partly with, in church with God or is it in, in partly in the world? And, 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 and we, we grow in this transition, I believe, but it starts by seeing where we are. So they made these coverings to cover themselves. And, and we do the same thing. We cover what we perceive as our nakedness because they're now ashamed. And they covered what they felt ashamed about. And we do that with one another. We do that with God, but more detrimental is we do it with ourselves. And we'll see that in a few minutes. And God comes and begins to ask questions. Oh, and the next thing, verse 8. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God coming into church. Um, oh, excuse me. Walking into the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves hid themselves. God didn't put them away. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And this is what we do when we're ashamed, when we're not in that place we need to be. We hide ourselves. I don't feel like praying. My prayers aren't getting through. And when it gets really bad, we stop coming to church. As Pastor Sam used to say, and I'm not saying that, so I'm not talking to you back there. We start moving further and further back. <laughs> I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying, but we, the point is, we, 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 get, we begin to get cooled off. Because, and so we begin to, they, God didn't push them away. They hid themselves, look at that, from His presence. And so, why? Because they were ashamed. So what's helped me to understand, when I'm having trouble getting close to God in my heart. It's never Him. There's something that's in my heart that I'm ashamed of, and I need to bring that under the blood. I may not have done it. It may have been something 20 years ago that the devil's brought back to my mind or my memory's brought back, and now I've got to bring it under the blood. So I realize once you become real to you, you renew your mind that Christ has paid for your sins. You're, the Bible says to come boldly, openly. I mean, that means when you fail, when you've fallen down and skinned your nose and done something wrong, come to Him openly and boldly. To receive mercy and help. Don't hide from his presence. But when you come say, this is what I did. I did it. Not, not, well, you know, the devil made me do it. Or, you know, my wife made me do it. Or, you know what, Lord, I'm just under a lot of pressure. No. If you've done it, you've done it. Face it openly. And then you can receive the forgiveness for it. And you can receive the help. But you can't feel, receive help if we're, if we're giving excuses. Excuses rob us of God being able to... Confession frees you. Frees you from it. God wants to free you from it. They heard the sound and and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. We need to move along here. Okay. So if we walk in truth, in the light, openness, we have fellowship with God. All right, the next thing we're going to talk about... And this is the last of the attitudes. So we've talked about the desire, a strong desire. If you don't want to change, you won't. You've got to be open and teachable. You've got to be willing to walk in truth. That's kind of the other side of being open and teachable. And the last thing, attitude you have to have is the most difficult. I saved the best for last. Now, you ready? This is what keeps most people from changing. And I'm talking to myself as much as you. And there's a price to pay 
to change. I was talking with somebody this morning that started to go through physical torture, I mean physical therapy. (laughs) I've never had that blessing. I've never had to, but my wife had to go through it. I've known some people that went through it. And the motto of physical therapy is no pain, no gain. And they're not there to hurt you. They're not there to make you suffer. But they're, under, they're there to stretch your muscles so that they can do what they were intended to do. Because if you don't stretch them beyond the point of, of, of what... Of the, see, when we get to the point of pain, we stop. So like I get up, you know, this morning and I go to bend over and I reminded myself, I, my body reminded me, you did some things yesterday you're not used to doing. But the, the temptation would be, and sometimes I've done this, I'll, I'll work out on a Monday when I don't feel like it. I come home, you know, Monday's a day for rest for me, and, and, but we've developed a habit, which we don't do every Monday, of going to the gym together and exercising. It's the last thing I feel like doing. My body's still aching from being doing two services. I'm, stay, I'm on my feet from 8 o'clock in the morning to 1.30 in the afternoon, usually. With the, that's why I have the chair. Every once in a while, I'll sit down a little bit just to give my legs a break. But, 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 but So Mondays when I get up, my legs are telling me, you were on your feet yesterday and you're not 20. But what I've learned to do is the very thing my body's telling me is, is you can't do this. You need to sit in your easy chair, you know, and sip lemonade all day. And just, but when I come out of that exercise, that strong exercise, I feel alive. I feel better. And guess what? The aches and pains went away. So I can't be moved by what hurts. I've got, but see, I can do that now because I know when my body's telling me, you're nuts, you're crazy, you're going to hurt me. I know if I go do that, if we go do that, I'm going to feel better when, because I know that I push through the pain. And that's what change is like. Because there is a cost to pay. If, if there were no cost to change, you would have changed already. If you have the desire, if you're open, if you're teachable, you already would have changed. What's keeping most of us is until we come up against it, I, I want to lose 10 pounds. All right, great. Here's what you've got to do. I don't know that I want to lose it that much. This is what keeps most people from really changing. When we're stuck in our growth, often we're holding on to something that's keeping us from changing. Because to, to, to embrace the new i got to let go of the old. I can't do both. That was Israel's problem. They wanted the blessings of the promised land, but they didn't let go of the memory of Egypt. And as a result, they had neither. They had neither. The price is to let to go. There's pain with change. John chapter 12. I want to move along because there's one other thing. Well, we may not finish it. John chapter 12. Verse 23. I saw something here I've never seen before. I was going to start in verse 24, but I read verse 23. Now, here's this is back. Jesus is preparing them that he's going to leave. Jesus answered and said to them, The hour has come that the Son of God should be glorified. So here's Jesus facing his change. And it says in Hebrews chapter 12, For the, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So Jesus could go through the suffering because he kept his eyes on what was on the other side of it. And what was on the other side of it was you and me with him in heaven. Was restoring to God the relationship he wanted to have with you. 
That was the joy set before him. He endured the cross. But now he's on the other side of it. He hasn't gone through this yet. The hours come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So the seasons, my, my season's about to change. I'm now going to go back and receive again the glory that I had with the Father before. But here's what i got to go through. Verse 24. Most assuredly I say to you, See, this is not unconnected from what he just said. My Father's going to restore the glory. It's time now for me to change seasons. It's time for me, because there was a time when I lived in this glory. Philippians 2 said he set aside that glory so he could come and take on flesh. And now he's about to set aside this fleshly body and take that glory back on again. Another change. And he says, she says, that's about to happen. But most assuredly, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. He's first of all talking about himself, because they wanted to hold on to him. Unless I take my life and I sow it into the ground, I sow that life and I die, my life only accomplishes my life. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He was willing to go through his death so that he could produce fruit, which is you and me. If he just came to this earth, walked among men, won his wonderful teachings, and then ascended into heaven, because that could have happened, we wouldn't be here today. We'd have a book with great teachings in it, just like some other great teachings of some other religions. But what changed everything is God was willing to take on flesh and then as a man, God was willing to die so that that death could produce fruit which was more sons and daughters into the kingdom which is you and me. So that change could not take place unless he were willing to die. But then he's also teaching for their lives. Because whatever you try to hold on to you will eventually... Let's go to verse 25. This gets real simple here. Now he's going to talk to them. He who loves his life will lose it. So even if you're trying to hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. <laughs> you won't keep it. But he who hates his life, and what that means is, he who does not love his life, he who's willing to give it up, will keep it for eternal life. So the principle here is that in order to go to the next level, in order to move from, from the, life, the human life we have now. See, the Bible talks about two different kinds of life. There's the Greek word bios, which means our biological life, which is what most of us think is life. Until you begin to taste life at God's level, and that's a spirit-to-spirit -spirit thing. That's why John 4.24 says in order to worship God, because he's a spirit, you have to worship him in spirit and in, oh, truth. How about that? So in order to commune with God, there's a level of life that God has put into us when we come to Christ, which is a, his spirit life, which the Bible calls eternal life. Eternal life, the word eternal, is not just talking about how long you're going to live, because everybody's soul and spirit are going to live forever somewhere. We'll talk more about that a little later. But eternal life is the quality of life. Life at the level God lives it. And that's not a big house with a fancy car. That's a, a level of life, a spiritual life, that is more real inside of you 
than it is on the outside. Through this treatment process I went through last year, and even sometimes even lately, I can't tell you, there are times I came in here, I'm looking at this pulpit and saying, I'm not sure if you can get up in the pulpit, let alone speak. There was one Sunday, but halfway through the whole first service, I was out of breath. Every time I'd speak something, I was short of breath. And my mind saying, you need to go sit down. But I couldn't do it. Somewhere halfway in the second service, some of you were here, it broke. And what it was, was the life of God just broke through my thinking, because my mind was worrying about it, warring against me. How can you go on preaching? If you keep going, you're going to pass out in front of them, and oh, you're going to be embarrassed. Oh, there's a mask. You are going to be embarrassed. This is going to happen to you. But I kept my focus on God and on you, and that eventually turned that around, and it broke, and the life of God, the life of God inside of me, just began to... We think the anointing is going to fall down out of heaven? No, the anointing's in you. It's in me. Romans 8.11 said, If he who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, think about that power, that life, in the place of death, made him alive. If that same spirit dwells in you, he will also quicken, make alive your mortal body. We've got to learn to tap. We all talk about this. We talk about walking in the spirit. We've got to learn to tap in to that life of God that's in you every morning when you get up. When I get up in the morning, I don't feel it. Sometimes I feel like 10 miles of unpaved road. I mean, it's like climb out of bed. Where's the coffee? You know, sit in there going. Mm. But I, I know by faith, if I begin to talk to him, and begin to open my heart, begin to be thankful for things, begins to stir up the gift that's in you. That's what Peter, John Peter, stir up the gift that's in you. Stir it up. Because God can't drop it in you. He already put him in you. Stir up that gift by what you say, what you do. And that life will begin to come to you. The life of God is in you. Okay. Matthew 10. One of my least favorite scriptures. (laughs) No, I love this. The Word's good, isn't it? The Word is good for us. It's good. God is good. He gives us good news. Sometimes I don't like it, but He gives it to me, and it's good for me. Matthew 10, verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father, who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I thought he was the Prince of Peace. Ah, follow this. I did not come to be pre- bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's not too hard to do. A man's enemies will be those... Not in our case. We've got, we got a wonderful daughter-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. Those who... Now, stop here a second. That sounds like strife. That Jesus came to bring strife. Wow, that justifies me. I can get mad at my wife now, and I don't want to. But no, no, that's not what he's talking about. Because he's the Prince of Peace. What he's talking about is that I am here, I have come to demand a change. If you're going to come to me, it requires a change. And it's a change in your allegiance. What he's saying here is, I have to be first. Not because he's greedy, because of who he is. He's Lord. In order to help you, he has to be first. If you ever go to the doctors, and doctors, you know, the doctors are there to help you. 
And you go to him and you say, oh, this could, I've got to be careful. This could, this is a great example. You know, and I, and I, you know, you go to the doctor because there's something you know is wrong inside, but you don't want him running tests. And you don't want him poking where it's sore. So you sit in the, and he says, okay, why are you here? What's wrong? I'm fine. I want you to sit on the table because I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to test it. Um, well, no, it's not, you know, we don't want to deal in truth with him, but he's trying to help us. And even the tests they go through, they'll say, you know, I love this. Now, this isn't going to hurt a bit. I've learned to ask a question. You or me? <laughs> Let's get more specific here. But even the ones that are uncomfortable are for my benefit. And, if, and, if, and I've got to be willing to let that. So what Jesus is saying is I've got to be first. If I'm going to be able to help you, if I'm going to be able to do for you what I, I have to be first in your heart above every other relationship. And where we get in trouble as Christians, and that you can be in the right place one day, and in a, by the end of the week be in the wrong place, is we begin to let people, other things in our life, and people in our life that mean something to us, that God's given to us, our spouse, our children, mean something to us, but they can't ever come into the place where they're above Him. And the greatest example is this in Genesis 22, where God has given Abraham Isaac and made clear that this has got to be the son I gave you, not one you've done on your own. And now Abraham's had a chance to love him and enjoy him. And then when God does this, they die, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Interpretation. God, one day God gets up. God's, God doesn't get up. God's, Abraham gets up. God says to him, I want you to take this son, your only son, whom you love, and I want you to take him to a place I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. I want you to open his heart chest up, and cut his heart out and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham never blinked. He got up early the next morning, went three days, went up on that mountain, and he was ready to bring the knife down. And God stopped him and says, Now I know that you reverence me. Now I know that I'm first in your heart above this beloved son I've given you. And he gave that son back to him. God is a jealous God, but He's jealous for you because He knows when He's first in your heart, then everything is in the order He ordained it to be. So when we're out of whack, when we're out of balance, when things have gotten into our heart, it hurts sometimes to make those choices. I remember when our youngest boys, our twins, we came down here and they were active in sports. They were in Little League Baseball and they were in other things, soccer and other things like that. And then the, 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 the coach handed out the game and practice schedule and there were games and practices on Sunday. I had to sit them down. I felt my stomach tighten up. I'm going to have to tell them they can't go. And the easy thing is to give in and say, well, no, that's okay because we go a lot. I mean, I wasn't on staff. I, wasn't, I was just sitting in a blue chair like you are. But I, we had to sit down with them and say, look, we are Christians before we're soccer players or basketball players. We belong to Jesus Christ, and He has to be first in our heart. And because of that, what He asks of us, the way, place we're going to grow most is when we go to church on Sunday, not to fulfill an obligation, because there we're going to learn, you're going to learn more about who He is and what He's done for you. So it's going to cost you. Well, what do I tell the coach? Tell him, we go to church on Sunday. You know what I found? They had greater favor. 
I did that with my last law firm I was in when they hired me. I said, you got to understand, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sunday. So if you have meetings on Sunday, I'm not going to be here. If you can, if that's okay, then I'll work for you. If not, I'll have to find something else. I had the most incredible favor there. There was one point Pastor Sam gave me some ministry work to do for about six months. And when I went to, I went to say, this is an opportunity I have. I won't do it if it's going to interfere with my work because my work is a priority. And he said, no, no, whatever you need to do, if you've got to leave a meeting, if you've got to leave a court hearing, we'll fill in for you. I had some amazing favor when I was there. And when I left to come here, they wouldn't take my keys back. They were hoping that someday I might come back, and yet they knew I wouldn't. My point is, when you put God first, it costs you something. But in the long run, it's a greater blessing. It's a greater blessing. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He who loves father and mother, verse 3, more than me. See, this is the issue. He who loves father and mother more than me. He's not saying you shouldn't love your father and mother. We're supposed to honor them, but not more than him. And he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And this is what he gets to. He who does not take up his cross, what's a cross? It's a place of death. And follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. So what Jesus is saying is, this change to be a Christian costs you something. Grace is free in the sense that he paid for it. But the kingdom of God, to walk in it, isn't free. It does cost us. We're living in an age where grace is emphasized, and I really want to... That's, that's true. But the other side of that, we, we don't, it, doesn't, we, it doesn't cost you to receive the grace... But when you fully receive His grace, that costs you. Because you can't still be who you used to be. You can't be in the world and in the kingdom of God. Now, we're not supposed to isolate ourselves from the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We're supposed to, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy your boat or you can't enjoy your car. But it's what places it have in your heart. And the little signs, there's places to find out what something has in your heart. is to look at your checkbook. Or, or how much money, what, what are your priorities in your spending? And look at what your priorities are with your time. Because there are only 24 hours in a day. Do I give God my best time? Do I give God my time first? If there's a choice between doing something and doing what God has for me to do, what am I going to do? That doesn't mean you can't take vacations. We're about to take a vacation. But part of that vacation is to get restored, get re-strengthened, so that we can come back. We'll enjoy the time together. We'll enjoy the rest. But, but my, ultimately, we're going to come back and do what, finish what God has for us to do. So God's not trying to take pleasure away from you. He'll, give you. he'll give you more than you can begin to imagine if you put Him first. If you put Him first. If you put Him first. We're going to have to bring this, bring this to a close. Um, in Matthew 10, 32, we're not, oh, that's where we are. Okay. The key... And this is the important thing. The key is to decide to pay the price at the beginning. It's always hard to decide to pay the price when you're facing the time to pay it. When we got married 50 years ago now, neither of us were saved, but my parents had gone through a divorce and it, it, it was hard for me to go through. I was a child in a divorce and I didn't want our children to go through it. I didn't want to go through what they went through. So we made a vow together. We weren't saved. That no matter what came or went, hell or high water, and they have both come, we would not divorce. 
And there were some critical times in these 50 years where what kept us together was that commitment. But if we waited to make that commitment until in the middle of those situations, I don't know what we would have done. I hope we would have stayed together. But we made that commitment. So what we face, here's what it comes down to. We faced ahead of time there was going to be a price to pay. We faced ahead of time. We may not know what it is. See, that's what you do in a marriage ceremony. You don't realize it, but you're giving your life to each other. What you don't really not realize. We didn't know what we were doing at the time. We were just getting married. But, 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 but you're, you're, you're deciding ahead of time how I'm going to handle those difficult situations. No matter what comes up, we're going to go through this together. No matter what comes up, what the price is, it, we're going to, we're going to, this is more important than anything else. And some of you have been through situations where that's not what happened and you got divorced and you may be remarried and God's good and gracious. And there may be situations where that's really what had to happen. So I'm not dealing with divorce and marriage right now. I'm talking about commitment. Commitment. Commitment is where you pay the price up front. And when the price has been paid up front, it's like going on a prepaid vacation. It's paid for. I don't have to worry. I don't have to think, how, what's the bill, what bill am I going to get? Because you've already paid for it. And so if you make the commitment that whatever the price is, I'm going to pay it. And understand, remember, that we talked about before, God's in you to help you do that, to help you go through it. He's not at the other end saying, let's see what kind of job you do. He's working in you by the Spirit of God to encourage you and strengthen you. And in this process, I will tell you ahead of time, you will fail at times. I do. You'll slip back. There are times you'll be weak and you'll give in to something you shouldn't give in to. But if you already prepare, see, I prepare myself when I'm going to change. I prepare ahead of time. There are days I'm going to make mistakes. But I already know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up the next day, turn the page. It's a brand new day. His mercies are new every morning. And I'm going to go on because he hasn't left me because I slipped back. He hasn't left me because I stumbled and fell. He hasn't left me because I pouted or felt sorry for myself. He hasn't left me because I'd done all those things because he knows I've made a commitment in my heart to begin with. One time I was praying, feeling sorry for myself and God, I'm sorry. I've fallen so far short. I've done this. I told him one, told me one time to shut up. He says, don't keep bringing that stuff before me. That's gone. I said, God, I'm sorry. I said, I made a commitment to you 30-some years ago, and I don't feel like I'm living it out. He said, son, when you made that commitment, I took you at your word. In my mind, you made that commitment from your heart. I consider that done. Now you're learning how to live it out. And that set me free. God doesn't check your commitment level every day and said, well, you know, yesterday was pretty good, but today you've already started out poorly. No, God, if you mean it in your heart when you make it, just like I meant it 50 years ago when I committed myself there, there have been some days I didn't feel it. And I know there have been many days she didn't feel it. But that didn't change the commitment we made. You see what I'm saying? So you pay the price up front. We have to end here. What we're going to get with, the last thing we're going to talk about in this, uh, when we get into this next time, we've talked about the attitude of change but now we're going to talk about the action of change. And I'll leave you with this statement that was one of Ed Cole's favorites. Change isn't change until you change. <laughs> Thinking about it, praying about it, talking about it, wanting to do it, all the other things we've gone through, that's wonderful, but it's still not change until you change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your love and your goodness to us. That you love us so much.
that you will not leave us where we are, but that you have a purpose and a destiny for our lives. You have a purpose and destiny for us today and a purpose and destiny for us tomorrow. And Lord, in this room right now, there are many people that are in different stages or seasons of our life. Some of them are in the process of transitioning from one to another. Some have just moved into one and they're learning to enjoy it and and understand what is this season of my life and accept it and, and flow in it because it's appointed under heaven for them. And Lord, as a church, we're the same way. We're at a season where I sense that you're preparing us to transition to a new level, to wonderful things that you have for us. And Lord, help us to let go of the old and to embrace the new. We'll never change the, the, the eternal things, the truths of your word, the truths of who you are. But Lord, help us to embrace the methods and the things that need to change. Show us what they are, Father. Help us to be open, me especially, in my mind and in my heart, and to know and learn and discern what changes are of you and what are not of you. We thank you for that grace. We thank you that you're faithful to walk through these things, these seasons of our life, with us and to help us and to show us the way. We thank you that you put in front of us, you put in front of us, Lord, the promise of the hope of the future of what this is going to mean. And so we tell you today that we trust you and thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.